Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today, I'm joined by Washington Examiner and New York Post reporter and columnist, Selena Zito. This is episode 13. From the need for cultural diversity in newsrooms, to criticism of her work, to how the media is covering Joe Biden, we start with Zito's time in local news. I wanted to start with uh, and just a, a simple question. Where, where are you now? I assume you're, you're home right now, but I feel like you're always on the road. And so I'm curious, where, where are we talking today? Well, we are actually talking from my home in western Pennsylvania. I did move out of Pittsburgh and go a little more rural right before Christmas, uh, uh, mainly to be by my grandchildren. <laughs> uh, and, but yes, I am always on the road. I'm going to be heading up to Michigan uh, tomorrow. I'll be in a coal mine on, on Monday, and on Friday I will be in Ohio. Wow. No, no, Sunday I'll be in Ohio. <laughs> All right. Well, we got the the next little bit of a, of the the road trip there. Uh, yeah, it, it is. I, I want to talk about your reporting um, and your 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 style and and your career. Um, but but let me start actually with, I don't know. I want to say maybe the least sexy topic that we'll talk about today. But that's that's your time in local news um, because I know you you worked uh, for a long time at the Pittsburgh Tribune Review uh, as a reporter and a columnist there, covering uh, both national politics but also uh, local stories. And, and I wonder about that experience and what that brought you. I, I talk a lot about in Fourth Watch the Acela media, you know, the New York and DC based uh, media that that just geographically is biased. Um, you have been, you know, for the for your entire career outside of that. So, what did that experience at that local newspaper bring to what you do now? I would likely still be there if they hadn't shrunk their um, their employee rate. Rate. I loved being a local news reporter. I always, I did always, as you pointed out, covered national politics and Pennsylvania politics, and also a little bit of Ohio and West Virginia because of the. You know, people don't tend to realize that Pittsburgh is 24 miles from the state border of Ohio and West Virginia. I mean, we, we really, you know, we really are right there in the Midwest and in Appalachia. But you learn so much as a journalist when you have to cover things as, well, as you said, as unsexy as a school board meeting, <laughs> which, by the way, to me is the most intense politics in uh in in america and and i think we're realizing that now nationally because of how we watch uh what's going on with schools being opened or closed um but also covered um you know policially you know there was a a shooting of police officers um and uh, you know all kinds of like incredibly important issues to the people in the region that affect their daily lives. And I think that's the perspective I brought myself, brought with me when I started working for national publications. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I, I'm, I mean, I think that's the national publications you worked for, um, you know, Washington Examiner now, New York Post now, uh, we'll say, you know, previously a, a, a contributor to CNN as well. I think that, you, that that's a valuable perspective to bring, particularly, you know, it's, it's missing from a lot of the national conversation. 
Um, but I also worry about local news. Uh, you know, I'm here in Dallas. Uh, our, our Dallas Morning News newspaper, which I used to be a, a print subscriber to, uh, and you don't get the, the newspaper every morning. Uh, and I basically stopped when the front page was just AP stories. And, you know, it's sort of sad, um, but it really was was alarming. And I, and I worry about what, that's, what that does to our, our media landscape with the decline in local news, particularly in newspapers. Well, I think it's very dangerous, um, not just for the because there's a lack of of um, reporters, but there's actually a lack of keeping the feet to the fire, the people that impact your daily life, the people that run the water authority, the school boards, the county uh, councils, the city councils, the mayors, the governors. All of these people need to be kept accountable. And as there are less watchdogs uh, to to report on what they're doing, as minimal as what they're doing may sound to a national um, uh, ear, you know, th- these are... Um, these are important things that impact your daily life. It impacts how the road that you drive on. Who's who's taking care of the road? Is there going to be a sinkhole? What about our infrastructure? Are is there going to be a water main break? Will that flood my town, my neighborhood, my businesses? You know, there there are so many things that are not being um, scrutinized, and and that is not good for a healthy democracy. No, it's not. And in fact, I think one of the pieces uh, that I thought was was really good. I was going back and doing some some research and looking at uh, at some of the, the your stories, um, which I've been tweeting. Uh, really, I think going back to certainly to 2016, um, 2016, 2017, 2018 in particular. Uh, and, right. Uh, but. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I want to start with one of the pieces, which was um, called "The Crisis in American Journalism," um, and it, it was, you know, it was a call, not just an issue that you're you were noticing with the media, but also with the the, the consumer. Um, you know that that the American people need to do a better job of critically consuming their news. Uh, you wrote, and not crying victim when something is reported unfairly, but also that you know the 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 eye rolling and inference need to be banished from the news, and people who live outside of New York City and Washington need to be understood with more honesty. Um, a really great piece, and I, and I guess let me let's start kind of diving into the national media. This was, you wrote this in May of 2017. This was early in the Trump era. Uh, what did you see so early on and, and where do you think it went over the last four years since then? Well, it's actually something that I have seen, I, I would argue, since the beginning of uh, Twitter, social media. Mm. And so to, to me, Twitter and uh, social media has become this echo chamber uh, of a lot of journalists who uh, share a worldview of what people, uh, what they assume people are um, uh, outside of um, New York or D.C. or L.A., whatever large city that you're in. And, And when the reporting was started to reflect that. So my argument has always been that in newsrooms and in other culture curators in in our society, there's too much of a concentration of people that are alike. 
you know, they live in the same zip codes. They went to the same kind of schools. They uh, socialize at the same kind of places. And so they have this one world view. And when they go to cover something that happens outside of their worldview, there is a, uh, a, a disdain or lack of intellectual curiosity as to what is not normal to them is incredibly normal to everyone else that they're covering. And, and I have found that what we need in our newsrooms is definitely more diversity. And I'm not just talking about racial diversity. We also need cultural diversity. We need more people that attended state schools or a community college or who sit in a pew or a synagogue every week um, and or own a gun and or know how to operate a gun, uh, you know, and or are pro-life. Yeah. So when they are dispatched to cover uh, an event, they don't bring a bias or prejudice to that event and write it and or tweet it and or criticize it with that eye. Yeah, I mean, I, I, <clears throat> I certainly completely agree uh, on that. And I also think, you know, the, the, the other main problem with it is, it's, you know, I would, I would describe as a geographic diversity that not yeah. just is people that have, you know, were born in different states or who grew up in different states, but who literally live and spend the bulk of their time in different states today, um, which, which I think is the big problem. I mean, yes. People call it helicopter journalism or, uh, you know, parachute journalism. But when, when a reporter goes and, you know, we saw a lot of this, you know, after, after the shock election in, in November 2016 of a, a reporter going to uh, Appalachia or, you know, the Rust Belt and talking to, to pe so a couple people for about an hour and then going back to the newsroom and filing the right. report. That's not really getting the, you know, that's not getting the meat of it. No, that's not. So, so one of the unfair criticisms of my work has been, oh, she just goes to a diner for shtick. No, I go to diners because that's where I eat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, I like diner food, and 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 diner food is much more prevalent where I live uh, than going to Applebee's. Mm. You know, you want people want to support a small business. You know, and people say, "Oh, is she?" You know, she just goes out there for a shtick. It's not a shtick. This is my life. This is what I've been doing for decades. I grew up and live in the Paris of Appalachia. You know, the, I have a cultural understanding of the people that that I cover, and and I think that that is to your point that you, if you are going to cover something, you have to have you need to educate yourself and immerse yourself in in that culture before you critically analyze it. So when I have when I'm going to go cover. Let's just say Kim Ryan, uh, congressman from Niles, Ohio. Uh, I don't jump on the highway and get to Niles, Ohio in 45 minutes. I take the back road. Right. Why? It's, it's important because you understand and you can see how regions, how towns, how counties have changed for the better and or for the worse. That's part of the story of understanding people. When I used to cover Trump rallies before he was elected, I would, I would head out probably a week ahead of time, uh, get to the town, and I always stay in bed and breakfasts. Mm. 
uh, because they're owned by small business owners. And small business owners always know where the bodies are buried in town, right? <laughs> like, they know where, they know the story of their town. And then I just would go and eat at local places, go to church, go to um, a, a local high school football game or soccer game, get to know and understand that community before... Um, before reporting on them, because that's important. You can't just go in there with your worldview and report because it's going to be skewed. Your, your instinct as a reporter is to look at the oddest thing. And then what happens is when national reporters cover a local news story that has made that is elevated to national prevalence they are looking at people as oddities right. rather than how comfortable they are within the culture that they're existing in yeah i've read it's sort of like uh it's almost like an anthropological yeah, experiment it's insulting. For them. It's, yeah i know right it's like look at these <laughs> look at the locals here we're you know observing them um uh, you sounds like you have a little buddy in the background there. Is that? Uh, <laughs> yes, that's that would be General Custer, and she and the she. Um, don't even get me started on how my kids didn't know what the gender of the cat was. Uh, but yeah, she'll she'll let her presence be known every once in a while. Zito was a CNN contributor. What was that like? But first, how Selena Zito saw the Trump era coming before most others in the media did. I want to talk uh, later about, uh, you mentioned unfair uh, unfair criticism of your reporting, and I think there's uh, more than that to go around. Let me talk about that later. But I do want to start uh, to dive in a little bit to your book, uh, which came out in 2018, The Great Revolt, uh, which if, if if people are listening and have not read that, um, I was just looking at mine last night and all the, all the dog-eared uh, pages I have, because it really was um, just, uh, you know, the really the perfect uh, book uh, that, that I think, not just a explained what happened in 2016, um, but also where things are going. And I mean, that, that is kind of the way it was it was framed as well. Um, in fact, there was uh, a review in, in The Atlantic, which said, unlike most retellings of the 2016 election, the Great Revolt provides a cohesive, non-wild-eyed argument about where the Republican Party could be headed. Um, and I think that's, that's the most important part of it. Um, tell me about the book, uh, putting that together, and, and but really also just from your reporting, why you think that you and I would say maybe like Chris Arnotti, a couple people saw 2016 coming and and then so many didn't. Well, I think the reason there's a couple of reasons. First of all, I had a geographic advantage. I, again, I live in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, so uh, that that helped. But also I had been covering I, I, I first noted that we could have a populist uh, election with an outsider winning uh, in 2006. Uh, that's when I first noticed, and, and this was come, might come across as odd to people, but in 2006, the Republicans lost uh, the midterm elections. It was the first big historic wave election since 1994. And when I was covering that, I noticed that when I interviewed voters, that they, uh, it wasn't that they 
weren't conservative anymore. It's just that they didn't like the establishment of the Republican Party. And the Democratic Party had wisely picked candidates that would be Republican in any other era. They were pro-life, they were pro-gun, they were fiscally conservative, they supported the military. Um, There were people like Patrick Murphy in um, Bucks County, Pennsylvania, Jason Altmyer in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, That is why they were successful. And I looked at that, I watched it, I watched it play out, and I said, this isn't because they like Democrats more. It's just that they're on the, the, the establishment Republicans aren't listening to them anymore. And there is this coming together of working class voters and um, suburban Republicans that that um, I think could change the trajectory trajectory of American politics. And, uh, and and then they voted for Democrats, but they weren't really voting for Democrats. They were voting against Republican establishment. And so that's when I first started to see the beginning of this of this coalition. And within each successful election after that, I saw them continuing to pull together. In 2008, uh, when Barack Obama was elected, a lot of them sat at home. Hmm. Uh, they didn't like John McCain. Uh, they didn't like Barack Obama, but they didn't like Barack Obama, not because of the color of his skin, but because of that elite intellectualism that that he espoused. It was very offensive to them because they understood that he didn't get them. And so a, far, a form of populism is sitting on your hands at home, and you saw that in 2008. You saw it, um, and, and when 2009 came across, uh, that was the beginning. In fact, today, what I think is the, uh, or right around now, is when the Santilli Tea Party started. Right. And you saw this growth of independents, Democrats, and Republicans pushing back, not just against Obama, but also against Republicans, and the 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 thing that saved the Republicans and pushed them to, um, to that win in 2010 in that big wave election was when John Boehner said, "Where are the jobs?" And it was the simplest message. I don't even think he thought he was making a message at that moment. But uh, that that was it, and that that's when that coalition got became its strongest. In 2012, uh, they were given the opportunity to vote for Barack Obama or Mitt Romney. Well, Mitt Romney (laughs) came across as the guy, not the guy that was going to save their job, but as the guy who was going to um, put come to their desk with a box, fill up their (laughs) stuff, and walk them out the building. Right, yeah. And, and part of that was an effective messaging by the Obama team. They knew they weren't going to win those voters over, but they're going to make sure they didn't show up for Mitt Romney either. And so, again, people sat at home. Uh, 2012 was the first election in modern American history where a incumbent president who won had less voters than they did when they won in, two, in the year the previous um, election. So you had voters sit home again. In 2014, 
you saw um, the Republican message was gearing towards them, towards these voters, and they had historic wins up and down the ballot, not just in the House, not just in the Senate. They had the largest majorities in state uh, chambers uh, since the 1920s. So people should have seen this coming. Uh, they should have understood in the way that culture was changing, that that was also impacting those voters. I saw it all the time. Uh, but then again, I, I did have a geographical um, advantage. And also, I have always reported this way. I have always gone on the road. I've always only taken back roads. And anytime I had to take an airplane, I went kicking and screaming. <laughs> right. Yeah, now you can really see it that way. Well, well, what do you think happens next? Because certainly, you know, the 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 populist coalition reshaping American politics, which was the uh, you know the subhead of your of your book, uh, that maybe maybe would have applied to like a Bernie Sanders on on the on the left, and certainly he made big waves in twenty twenty, but uh, didn't get the nomination. At the same time, Joe Biden, you know, would not be conf confused as a populist, but but has a connection, you know, you could you would say to to the average person, uh, to a person who is not part of the elite power structure. You could actually make an argument that was part of the reason he was dissuaded from running uh, by his own party in 2016. Um, so, so where do you think we go from here, from the left and the right? Well, I think that, um, first of all, you know, a lot of people thought that Donald Trump's election was about him. It wasn't. It was about, it. he is the result of this coalition. He did not he did not create it. He didn't cause it. And so, uh, and, and, and so this coalition goes forward. And while he turned off suburban voters, just enough of them for Biden to narrowly win, those same suburban voters <laughs> voted Republican down ballot. You know, the Democrats were supposed to have this ginormous blue wave where they were going to win at least 20 new House seats. They lost 12. Uh, and they were supposed to win all of these Senate seats. They didn't. And they were supposed to win state, the majorities in state chambers in Arizona, North Carolina, Pennsylvania didn't happen. Not only did it not happen, but they, lo they lost seats. Yeah. And there was a ton of money dumped in, in these races. And, and people, th that, that people were able to push back against this money, these ads, the cultural pressure, you know, every other neighbor having a Black Lives Matter uh, sign in their yard, um, everyone, uh, whether it's a sports entity or an enter entertainment entity or the Democratic Party or the former president scolding them for voting Republican, they bucked culture and voted Republican in a very strong way in, in, in November. And people still are misreading that and they're misunderstanding that and they're not understanding that this coalition is not going away just because Donald Trump lost. Right. And, and while the media is trying to find another way to spook them off the Republican Party by making it appear as though every single Republican or every single person that voted Republican is responsible for what happened on January 6th. They're not having any of it anymore. 
Yeah, you look at uh, something like Susan Collins, which is it's shocking to think. I mean, th- th- that was a foregone conclusion. She was going to lose that Senate race, and she ended up winning by, I believe it was nine points. Nine uh, points. By the way, I went up there and, and came back and wrote, yeah, she's not losing. I don't know what you guys are smoking, but she's not losing. Later, we dive into one of the most unfair critiques of Zito's work. That's next. But first, let's talk about fact checkers. What will fact checkers find on Clubhouse? Read the pointer headline from an outlet that purports it champions freedom of expression, civil dialogue, and compelling journalism that helps citizens participate in healthy democracies. Clubhouse is the up-and-coming app that allows for users to have conversations in real time, like a live podcast where listeners can participate. This free-flowing exchange of ideas is apparently very concerning to pointer. How is it championing freedom of expression with columns like this? Look how Pointer, in an alarming few paragraphs, positively points to the work of Facebook and China for what they're doing to crack down on speech. Here's a quote. With the myriad of other platforms fact-checkers are forced to contend with, would it be best for them to ignore Clubhouse for now? Facebook didn't. According to the New York Times, it's already building a product to compete with Clubhouse. Neither did the Chinese government. On Monday, after a rare moment of cross-border dialogue between users from mainland China and others outside the country, Chinese censors moved in. If Xi Jinping's administration isn't ignoring Clubhouse, why should fact-checkers? Why should you? What is next for our fact-checking obsessed media monitors? Fact-checking your personal text messages? Enabling Siri and Alexa to jump in if they overhear IRL conversations that deviate from the acceptable consensus of what counts as, quote, facts, according to Pointer? It would be laughable if it weren't so concerning, as this sort of anti-speech activism is growing in the media. More with Selena in a minute, but first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that formed the greatest country on the planet. The First is free. No subscriptions, no credit cards, no trials, no censorship. Watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. Now, back to Selena Zito. You were a CNN contributor uh, uh, for uh, a few years, and I, I wonder if you look at that network. I, I was uh, a little surprised, because I think you know, CNN has massive resources globally, certainly nationally, um, and yet have chosen uh, a route to to basically cover a very small minority of stories in the country um, and and to blow them out as if they are the only things that are happening in the world. Um, what do you think, what do you make of where things have gone there? Well, you know, when I first joined, they hired me the day after the election, and I will be forever grateful for them because I don't know if you know this or not, but I didn't have a job on election day. Oh, really? Um, I, I had, let me backtrack to just a second so you can understand this a little bit. On September 19th, 2016, um, I took a buyout at my newspaper. Um, you know, it became apparent that if I didn't, I would lose my job. Uh, and and so as I as anybody that has ever worked in a newsroom or were, ever worked in an industry where you're very tight knit, it was incredibly um, heartbreaking. And as I was walking out of that news of the newsroom, literally weeping, um, I get a text from the Trump campaign, and they said, "Hey, you got an interview with Donald Trump in two days." And I was like, "Oh, thank you." And my inside voice was like, "I don't have a job. I don't. I don't <laughs> have anywhere." <laughs> so I called the New York Times. They weren't interested. I called 
oh my gosh, I can't remember how many newspapers I called. It ended up being the Atlantic that, that took my story. And that was when I made the observation that voters take him seriously, but not literally. And my profession took him literally, literally and not seriously. I didn't think it was particularly brilliant, but um, some people did. And so it, it afforded me the ability. I, I freelanced for four different news organizations writing four different stories, making not much money, uh, seven days a week from September 23rd until Election Day. When Election Day came, Election Eve came, I interviewed Mike Pence on the tarmac, and I um, came back home, wrote the story, filed it, and cried. Because I knew that I had just interviewed the next vice president of the, you know, the country, but I didn't have a job the next day. So on, on election day, I had one more freelance job that was with the New York Post. I covered Pen uh, Pennsylvania's election night because I understood that there were 10 counties that were going to uh um, move this election towards Trump. And it wasn't Philadelphia or um, uh, Allegheny County and Pittsburgh that were going to be it. I understood by um, 845 the election was over and he had won. And, and he had, if he had won our state, my state of Pennsylvania, that meant he had also won Wisconsin, Michigan, North Carolina, and Florida because Pennsylvania was four, five points more Democratic than those states. Um, and, and so the next day, I get a call from CNN. Well, I, let, me, let me backtrack just a little bit. Next day, I woke up. I had no jobs. Again, I cried. I was 57 years old at the time, and I knew that my profession was dying and that I was going to need to work two to three other jobs uh, to be able to possibly reach the salary I was making as a news reporter. Oh. And um, nobody really wanted me anymore. And I kind of felt like some of the Trump voters that I had covered yeah. um, who had faced similar things. And, and so I, I cried again. Um, and, and I was walking to the bakery next to my house. I'm a real, you know, when I used to be on Twitter, you know, that I baked a lot and cooked a lot. And I figured, well, I'll just apply to be a bakery, you know. And, and as I was walking there, CNN called and said, hey, do you want to be on Jake Tapper's show today? And my first reaction was, well, what did I do wrong? Um, but yeah. they said, no, no, no. You're the only reporter that consistently said this was going to happen, and we want you to talk about it. And, oh, by the way, we want to hire you. Oh, so wow. they were the first people to hire me when I had no job. By the way, the bakery did not hire me. <laughs> it was a French bakery. Apparently there's difference. I don't know. Um, so, so in the beginning, when I first started at CNN, they were incredibly curious about the, the Trump voter, but that, that swiftly changed. And as that changed, they just stopped, um, having me on a lot of times they thought that I was inside Trump's head. I would defer that to Maggie Haberman. Yeah. I was never inside Trump's head. What I was inside was the voter's head. Right. And and I don't think that it's it's a nuance. I think they never quite understood. It's it's a perfect segue here in a couple of reasons. First of all, I 
always attributed that literally not seriously or seriously not literally quote to Peter Thiel, who I guess picked it up from your your yeah, headline, he did. Yeah. right? Um, but it honestly is the perfect entry to ask you about uh, something that uh, I think is is one of the more unfair pieces of, of criticism of you and your reporting, uh, and that is the HuffPost uh, I would oh. say controversy, uh, which I, I honestly remembered this because I, I ended up going on like a 10-tweet rant defending you. <laughs> this was even before I even yeah. knew you, um, just knew your reporting. Uh, but it, going back and looking at this, this was now two and a half years ago or so that this came out. I, I was shocked by just, th- this was the on the front page of HuffPost, Slippery Selena, Trump Whisperer Exposed. And the subheadline of the story was, is the populist whisperer of Trump country full of crap? And the most amazing thing is you go back and actually read the story, and the answer is essentially, no, no, we, we tried, but not really, no. Uh, <laughs> I, I, but that, that, that was all it took, right? The headline, the subheadline, oh, that was it what was, it did. It was a horrible time in my career. I, 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 I think I lost, I think, 14 pounds in seven days. I was, if you've never been attacked like that, it all started with an anonymous uh, uh, account that had like 100 people that it followed, and I think nobody followed it. And they started a thread that screenshotted and and um, manipulated the the people for things in my stories and in my reporting to make it appear as though I was dishonest, as though I I never left my house, as though I never talked to people, uh, and... um, and you know that 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 the coalition, you know, they, they had this assumption that the coalition was only Democrats, and uh, that that um, that flipped, and that that was what my book was about. It wasn't what my book was about. It was also about Republicans who struggled with their vote for him. Uh, you know, certainly there were, um, uh, you know very high-profile Republicans that struggled with their vote for him. Some of them did vote for him, like Pat Toomey. Some of them didn't vote for him. Uh, and But that's part of the coalition. It's not just this one, you know, silo. Well, that, and, yeah. and, and so it was really incredibly dishonest. Uh, they, they tried, they called CNN and demanded that I be fired. They called the pu- Crown Publishing, demanding that the book be take, uh, taken off the shelf. Uh, they um, called both of the newspapers that I work for and demanded that I be fired. I, it, it, was, it, it was a coordinated attack by a number of anonymous accounts and uh, and it it was brutal. And by the way, it wasn't true. Right. Well, that's uh, the thing. There was definitely an element of you know Selena actually was making up these people. Um, but but part of it was not just on your reporting. It was on the people themselves. And basically, not saying we have proof that this this person could not have become a Trump voter or something. But just yeah. it feels like this person can't. Right. There there must be something wrong. And there were there was lots of good reporting on this. Uh, after the fact, I will say uh, someone like Alex Parker, who really dug in, I think he did some good work. And, and also even Vox, which I went back and looked, actually, you know, they they went long into it. But ultimately, they concluded that th- that this is not this is not an accurate representation of your reporting. But there were things on it like, how could this person 
be suddenly interested in GOP politics and, and oh, like as if as just just a total uh, ignorance of the kinds of people that might might have ultimately ended up voting for Trump or you know becoming interested in politics in the first place. Um, yes, yes, and and they continue to do. Now I left Twitter. Um, I know, like I've, completely. It's gone. Your account's gone. Yeah, I, I don't exist. I deactivated my account. Uh, for a, and I did it two years after that happened. So, but I, what I, a couple of reasons why. First of all, I found Twitter to just be a place for journalists to tell each other how wonderful they are, <laughs> and or attack each other. Uh, that's something I never grew up with in journalism, um, and or it was it was too heavily loaded with. Democrats, and I'm not talking about regular Democrats. I'm talking about very progressive Democrats, and uh, and or never Trump Republicans. And I felt as though if I stayed on Twitter, I would not understand what's going on in the country. I would lose this valuable thing that I have. And I also didn't. It didn't make me a better reporter. Didn't make me a better person. Yeah, it's uh, a. <laughs> It, it, there, there's something. I mean, I, I went back and looked at also kind of what I said after this, and and one of the things I really think this exposed, and what I, I continue to believe is the case, is that there is real fear in DC and, and New York City newsrooms, and I don't know if it's even, I don't know if it's conscious or subconscious, but the the what you're doing is you are giving not just a voice to these people, um, but there, there's it's scary that that people that you report on that that are that make up your stories, the sources in your stories could sway public opinion, could sway the readership uh, of, of l- large publications. Their opinions could matter. And I honestly think that that is, that is really what's at the, at the base of this, is that these people are having more sway than ever before. And that's only happening more and more now with the rise of independent media. Um, that, that is, that, that's, that's a fear in, 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 in what, what was at one time a pretty siloed power structure in America. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I, you know, I, I worry about using people's names in stories today because, because the mainstream media has, for the most part, adopted this, this company line that anyone that supported Trump is no different than what happened than the people that participated in January 6th. While they say there's no cancel culture, well, first of all, I can say, yes, there is a cancel culture. Hmm. Um, But second of all, I just don't, I'm so cautious. I mean, I ask a person two, three, four times, are you sure you want your name in the story? Because I don't want it impacting their lives, their restaurants, their closing business, their cleaning business, um, or, or their families, or their kids. There's a, there's this real um, uh, infrastructure of destruction that comes from social media that that really deeply concerns me. Uh, I know the impact that this, what happened to me, it has is still here. It's still, it's still, it's now part of who I am. Uh, and that inability, you know, and I had the ability to fight back. I was able to write a story 
Thank you. And in the New York Post, uh, uh, Washington Examiner, and uh, Wall Street Journal all carried the story, all three entities that I write for, all carried my same story across the board, um, pushing back against uh, what was said about me and included audio clips and transcripts, you know, debunking every lie that they put. But a lot of people don't have that ability to be able to stand up for themselves. Yeah, no, it's true, and it does it does worry me about that. I, I it's interesting. I um, <laughs> we can talk offline about something because I I I, I I I I agree with you on on that. And I think um, what what's the most concerning is the people that are driving these cancellations, that are driving this sort of um, what I've described as anti speech activism. It's not just partisans it's not just like you know trolls of the political sphere it's people in the media um it's people that oh, are in our business yes that's where i i mean people that i thought i was friends with came after me now they knew my character they know how hard i work i mean anybody that's ever seen me out on the road covering anything i usually have a flannel shirt on and cowboy boots and jeans <laughs> And I'm sitting plugged into an outdoor outlet outside of a strip mall because, the, you know, uh, the, you know, uh, and, and so, yes, the, the, the media is part of this gang up. The worst criticisms, the people that were the most vicious to me were part of the media and or part of or, or or republicans a part of the never trump republicans right and any any time you say my name on twitter it's usually or, or search it's usually like diners gas stations and liar that comes up and you know that taint on my reputation despite how hard i work to tell the whole story it will always be there it will never go away yeah i i the only thing, you know, the only positive, I guess, is that I, I feel like we we have to be reaching some sort of inflection point here because and, and the pendulum's got to swing the other direction, With, especially now that lots of people on the left are getting canceled too. Uh, you know, people that are that felt like they were maybe part of the club. Uh, it's going to come for you. And the more people that see that this this is not sustainable, uh, I think the better for for this this crazy time that we're in. The Fourth Watch lightning round is coming up, but first, what the media is still getting wrong about COVID. I want to ask you about a totally different issue, um, but a column that you wrote very recently uh, for the Washington Examiner called The Kids Aren't All Right, uh, related to COVID. And you have a quote in here uh, from someone, another uh, of your, you know, just quintessential great, uh, you know, interviews with with a person who says this isn't a left right problem; it's a unilateral problem. It's our children; they need to go back to school. We need to follow the science. That's my main point, and I am unwilling to have my children's education held hostage any longer. Uh, let me just ask, on from a media perspective, why do you think this part of the story is not being covered as much as others when it comes to COVID? Because there, there is this protection of the club, the protection of the um, elites, and part of the elite infrastructure is the teachers' union, uh, and the teachers' union is is, um, for lack of a way of putting it, they're one of us. So we we can't cover this in a way that makes us our team. Our people look 
bad or selfish or uncaring or whatever word you want to, to associate it with. Uh, and, and so there has been a reluctance um, among Main Street journalists to really hammer this hard. And I think the ones you, the only ones you see that do do that are ones that have children of their own and they see the impact it has had on them psychologically, emotionally, um, uh, their, their uh, maturity. Uh, all of that has been impact. I mean, I see it everywhere. I mean, I live in a state that's shut down. Uh, it's, it's absolutely awful. Which is why I moved to the county that I did and left the county that I was in. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's going to become a big story in, you know, six months from now, nine months from now, a year from now, uh, and and longer. I, I think that the... the, ten, the ten years from now, yeah. how are these kids going to compete in the workforce yeah. uh, with other kids that have been at school? How are these kids going to be able to form meaningful relationships, get married, um, you know, and do all the sort of things you do in young adulthood? They're going to be... Um, uh, held back by the by what happened to them uh, in, in this year, year and a half, two years. Lord knows how long this is going to go. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. Uh, okay, last thing: uh, six questions, sixty seconds. First, oh, no. where, where were you born? Pittsburgh. All right. Uh, you are a Washington Examiner, New York Post reporter, and columnist. What is one benefit and one cost of those jobs? Uh, they both have great benefits in that they, they trust my instincts to find the story and tell it. They don't tell me what to go find. They tell me, go find what's happening. Um, the cost would be how much wear and tear there is on my car. <laughs> my, my, my last car had over, I don't know, 300,000 miles on it. Wow. Impressive. Who is someone who's been a mentor for you? Um, I, I think... Uh, it's someone outside of the business. It is. It has been my parents. They have both been incredible mentors for me in teaching me the importance of hard work, of uh, putting my smile, a smile on my face, and to treat people kindly even when they don't deserve it. <laughs> All right. Uh, who is one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? Uh, I like Tim Ryan a lot as a person. Uh, he's a, a Democratic congressman from Niles, Ohio. I think that he does the best that he can in a district that is changing dramatically to represent his district and not represent his party. That's great. Who's and Joe Manchin, also, same thing. No, uh, no more important voice right now, potentially, in the Senate. Uh, who is one person in the media you think is really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think that, well, I, you know, I adore Megyn Kelly. I really do. But she does get a lot of attention. So I guess that's not a, uh, a, fair, a fair person to put, it, to put in there. Um, I would just say 
a lot of young women that are out there right now that are are just starting out in the industry. Uh, I always say to keep an eye on them, and, and most importantly, let me let me let me say this: every state house reporter in the country should get a follow from from social media, and that's the, these are the people that are working ridiculous hours and covering things that might not seem that sexy, but are very important in the national discourse. Excellent. Last one. One year from today, what is one prediction for the media? We're still not getting. Uh, I don't think my my profession gets it yet. One year from now, I I I, I said I, I am traditionally an optimist, but I I, I still think that uh, the the disconnect between who they cover and where they live is just going to get wider. Selena, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks to Selena Zito. Remember, Fourth Watch, not just a podcast, also a newsletter. You can subscribe now. It's three times a week. Subscribe for free at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. And you can download, follow, like, rate, review this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This was produced at Full Circle Studios in Addison, Texas. Next episode with Lawrence Jones of Fox News. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.